The following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. As I said, we are privileged to have Reverend Joel Edwards speaking with us tonight. He is from the UK. Um, and he is an international speaker, he's a writer, he does some broadcasting on the BBC. Uh, some of the favourite topics uh, he gets to preach about are biblical teaching, leadership, faith, justice. Um, so really privileged to have him here tonight. And also he's a man who has followed Jesus' call um, on his life. He's led um, and been a part of the direction of um, Evangelical Alliance in the UK and also for about 11 years was the International Director for the MICA Challenge. Um, so he's got some experience. Yeah? Yeah, really looking forward to hearing from you. Genuinely just excited to hear about how God's moved in your life and, yeah, what he's done in your life and the power that you have to deliver this message and what he's going to say through you. So thank you so much for being here tonight. Please give him a round of applause as he comes up. Richard, thank you very much. And... Uh, Good evening. <laughs> How to make your audience panic. Hey, thank you very much for um, bringing me back um, this second time. I had a great, great time uh, last time I was with you. No promises about repeating that this time, but I had fun. And um, I used to be a pastor uh, before I got a proper job, you know. So I used to be a pastor. And, uh, there's one occasion where we had this visiting preacher. The first time around, he was, he was one of these power guys, you know. He was absolutely disastrous. And everybody hated what he did to people. Um, so after about a year or two, I said to my leadership, I said, um, I'm going to bring him back to preach. And they said, absolutely not. I said, well, actually, I'm going to bring him back, not for your benefit, but for his Let's see if you can get it right the second time. So I'm wondering if that's why I'm here the second <laughs> time round. Well, um, as you heard, it, it was just so, uh, such a privilege being a part of the Justice Conference. And um, thank you so much for your energy as a church, your passion, your genuine commitment to the agenda uh, for looking after and hosting and caring for those members of the Tear family and those engaged in this ministry, like Paul and many others, um, Karen, who looked after me this, this afternoon. Um, that means a lot when people who carry this agenda um, also have a church community which resonates with this, this big agenda of God, rather than feeling like there's some kind of, you know, um, outpost uh, experience of Christian experience. But you have been a part of this journey as a local church, and that means a great deal. I was saying to Karen coming along that there was a time in um, my own experience that you could, you could empty a church in a number of ways. So you could say, fire, everybody run. Or you could say, there's a mouse in the house. Or you could say, justice, they're gone. Uh, but here you are. Um, so listen, because I know you're not scared of the subject, I'm not going to really preach on justice. I know it's a big R. But what's happening for me this time around over these last couple of weeks um, 
is that I feel more like a, in kind of a pastor mode, actually. Um, so seeing your pastors are having a night off, I'd be your locum uh, for about 40 minutes or so. Um, and what I want to talk about is, I think, a, a perennial question in the Christian faith, whether you are 15 or 55, or 55 going north, it is the kind of subject which comes back to us again and again. How do I know God's will for my life? As a pastor and church leader, if I had a pound for every time I, asked that, I was asked that question, I'd be a relatively rich guy. And it's right that we should come back and interrogate our lives and what God is doing in our lives in that way. What are you doing? I know that for myself as a young Christian and for many who have brought that question to me, that question is normally accompanied by a tremendous amount of anxiety, sometimes bordering on paranoia, because there's a kind of feeling that um, God is supposed to be doing something quite extraordinary in my life, especially if I've just returned hot-footed from a justice conference where international speakers sort of swan in, grab the microphone, and tell you how they've changed their whole nations in two weeks because they were standing at the bus stop and just the right time the spirit whispered to them that that person across the road from the bus stop with the red hat needed a word and they went over to the red hat person, gave the right word, that person just happened to be the prime minister of another nation and then, whoa, the nation was changed. Those kind of things really happen but what it does is it sets the rest of us like slight dwarfs and we're feeling, hey, God has not even changed my outfit recently, in my, let alone a nation. And the funny thing is, the thing which is supposed to draw us together in one seamless task, the will of God, separates us very often, doesn't it, between the them and us. The people who get on the platforms and tell you what you should be doing with your lives because they've got it together. And, you know, you left thinking, I, I've got to get myself together. I've got to know what God's will is and then it doesn't quite work out, so you come back the next week to be told again. And so there is this, this cycle of almost spiritual depression which comes back. Or it gets so difficult to nail down that you just give up. Let's not bother with what God might want to do in my life. Let's not bother with where God is going. I'll just coast along and uh, have as easy ride as possible. I think there's a middle path somewhere down there we want to try and see if we can follow. And then the problem with what is the will of God for my life trips us into, a, into the fallacy of the bespoke will of God for my life. What I mean is, the bespoke will is that there is an idea that there is, there is a will which God has for my life which only I can do. Nobody else on the planet can step into this space apart from me and if I don't do it, the kingdom's going to come crashing around my right and left ear at the same time. So somehow I've got to step into the will of God because only I can do it. And it's a kind of a individualized, individualistic thing about finding God's will in such an intense way that the whole of eternity, all the angels in heaven are looking on and saying, are you going to do it, girl? And the weight of that is just incredibly difficult. So this individualistic thing also doesn't help much. It's a little bit like, you know, going out, you've gone into a, a big do a banquet and you've gone and bought yourself a really expensive dress only to turn up to find out three other people have exactly the same dress. 
assuming you're a woman. Uh, that's not cool. You want something just tailor-made, the bespoke will of God. Well, I think in terms of trying to find out what God wants, what God wants, a good place to go is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, um, verses 8 to 17, I'll read. I think it's page 816 in your Bibles. I'll read while you catch up with me. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's a funny thing, that, because I hadn't noticed until I was reading this text recently, that it doesn't say you were once in darkness, but now you are in light. It actually says you were once darkness, but now you are light. That's very deep. Um, Richard, please don't preach on this, because I'm going to try and work it at it myself. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And, here it goes, find out what pleases the Lord, having nothing or have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. I normally shout that line, but we won't do that just now. Rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then, be really careful then, how you live, not as unwise, not as stupid, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, there he goes again, but understand what the will of the Lord is, or understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be daft. And this idea of making the most of every opportunity in the old authorized version, the King James Version, um, it says, redeeming the time for the days are evil. And there's a note of panic in that version. It's like time is lost. We've missed out on something. The devil has snatched time away from us. And now we've got to kind of claw it back desperately. No, the real meaning here is conveyed much more by this version of the Bible, the NIV. Redeeming the time means making the most. This isn't chronos, time, but kairos, season, opportunity, a moment to be seized. This is the meaning, redeeming the time or making the most of every opportunity. This understanding of redemption is rather like you're going to buy a house, you really like it, it's just inside of your budget, you want to put down a deposit, you're going to seize it, you're going to take it off the market. And so here's the idea, let's take every opportunity because times are tough. So this isn't making hay while the sun shines. This is making hay while it's raining. This is the gospel which says, we who understand the Lord's will, don't wait for the good times to come in order to experience what pleases God. But in every given set of circumstances, we have a sense of being involved in and being enveloped by and being engaged and commissioned by the will of God. This is what Paul is consistently concerned about. And this is why Ephesians is a really, really good place to make this point. The book of Ephesians is a great book. 
um, uh, the book of Ephesians is the more than me book, really, because nothing in there is in the singular. Every time you see you, it's plural. This is a community book. This is not a book which is written as a polemic against something else. Paul isn't straightening out, straightening out doctrine or bad behavior. He's not trying to stop Christians beating each other up at the altar rails in church. He is taking six chapters as we now know it to lift up the exalted Christ and to give a sense of the role of the church in the world. And this is what the book of Ephesians is all about. So he begins in the first chapter by this wonderful exalted image of Jesus lifted up and high pretty much like he does at the opening of the book of Colossians. And from there, he's already by verse 9, talking about the revelation of the mystery of God's purposes for us. And then he moves into the second chapter where he begins to tell us that we have actually fallen into grace. By grace you are saved through faith. It's not by your works so that anyone should boast. It's the gift of God because we have been given good works to do in advance. And then straight out of verse 10 of chapter 2, he goes into verse 11 to say, ah, and don't forget, you were once Gentiles. Now you have been pulled into this program of redemption. And that's what we're talking about if you're in the church in Ephesus. And from 2, 3, he's talking about the way in which Gentiles have been grafted into the program of God, joining the chosen people, the Jewish people, to be a part of this colossal program. Chapter 4, he moves over into the way in which the Spirit flows through the life of the church, apostles and prophets and pastors. Why? To build up this we church to make us a we people for the community. And out of that, he begins to Admonish in chapter 5, he starts talking about human relationships, husbands and wives. He drifts over in chapter 6 to talk about uh, uh, work relationships, masters and, and employees, and how the whole thing then gets wound up in a massive spiritual message. So what he's saying is all these human relationships are also lived out in the context of spiritual warfare. We do not only wrestle against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling with spiritual evil in very high places. And therefore, the purpose of God, the will of God, is the big picture, is the wide angle. Ephesians is telling us that if you want to know what pleases God, you might have to step out of the individual individuality or the individualism and the egotism of me, myself, and I, and what does God want to do with me, important though that is, and get the big picture of where God is and where God has always been and where God is actually going. That's really so important. Once a year, over certain ponds and lakes in particular parts of the world, um, a, a huge phenomenon happens. A, um, an insect rises up, it's born, it grows into adolescence, it reproduces, and in the millions, they die in 24 hours. It's the mayfly. So here's my advice. Never employ a mayfly as your historian. You will get a very limited view of history. And there's a whole bunch of Christians who walk around with a mayfly myopic view of what God is doing. It's all about me. It's all about what's happening here in the reality of my own experiences. Or churches 
who spring up from nowhere, God bless them, they're doing really well, and they think the kingdom of God is as old as they are. They didn't actually see that God is coming from a long way back. Those of us who were at the conference um, heard from um, Uncle Ray of the Aboriginal way of walking backwards into the future. So you're always in touch with where you're coming from. God's purpose is a little bit like that. He is for the long game. And it is the powerful nature of this long game which empowers us to locate ourselves in the specificity of what God is doing in your life and mine. Whenever I get the opportunity, I try to use the word specificity because I didn't know how to use that at one stage. Now I've gotten the hang of it, I try and get it into as many sermons as possible without biting my tongue, in case you wondered why I bothered to use the word in the first place. That's why. So, I was hanging out with a sister of mine, really good girl, mid-twenties, bright, um, a kind of a spiritual sister and um, friend, really. And uh, a disaster struck her last year. Her mother died. She loved her mom. Her mom was a great Christian woman. And um, she couldn't work out why God would take her mother. It almost made her pack up ministry. It almost made her put down tools. And she could not fathom, why would God allow my mother to die? My mother has served him all her life. Why should cancer claim my mom? Really angry. So I said, well, uh, Sandra, her name isn't Sandra, but it's embarrassing to call her by her first name, Benjamin. So I said, Sandra, so if somebody else's mama died, would God be okay? <laughs> and she thought. So that means that uh, if disaster happens to other people, God is sovereign. If disaster happens to you, he's not. Is that the way it works? If something crashes around me, God takes a dive. His credibility goes south. But it's okay for disasters to happen to other people as long as you're fine. Then I'm in the will of God. No. Take every opportunity, says Paul, whether disasters come or not. Ladies and gentlemen, the purposes of God cannot be determined, defined by your circumstances or mine. This is the thing about the will of God. It's got to be bigger and broader and greater than anything which happens in me or to me along the way. How do I know what pleases God, Joel? You know what pleases God because you should know what God's purpose is. God's purpose in the world is to bring the whole of creation back to himself. That's the gig. That's the show in town. That's what God is about. And the particularities of my life in defining and determining and seeking what God is doing must fall in line with that. The big screen is the thing, not the singularity of what is happening in my own circumstances. The problem I find for me is that if knowing what God wants from me 
depends in my life choices alone or in the thing I thought God really wanted me to do and then it didn't happen, then God is hijacked by my circumstances. And what happens is I move from one spiritual crisis to another because I was sure that this is what God said, this is what God meant. And then it didn't happen. And then I'm in a, a real mess. Does that ring a bell for anybody? It certainly rings a bell for me. There's been times in my life I have been as sure as a human being can be that God had determined something for me which only I could deliver, that God had called me or sent me or determined something to happen to me personally, and that it didn't happen. I had all the faith in the world for a thing to happen, and it didn't happen. And the crisis that leads to becomes unbearable. So there are some important things in life. Maybe I didn't get the dream job that I prayed for and I was sure about. Maybe the degree didn't work out and I had to stop halfway through. Maybe the perfect marriage which I had in mind went south after five years or seven or 20. Does it mean now that suddenly the will of God for my life becomes redundant? Do I have to park my Christian faith to one side because some specific issue or hope or plan or thought for my life did not work out? No, because God has always got to be broader and bigger and better than the ups and downs which comes in my life, especially when I was so convinced. Now, don't read me wrong. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak specifically into our lives. You know, he does. There have been times when I have had very direct prophetic words for me. My attitude to prophetic words is, thank you very much. Let's see how it turns out. <laughs> I don't, I don't, sign off a checkbook on a particular prophetic word before I get home. I don't take it to the bank before I get home. I want to stop and wait to see it mature. One day I was in a prayer meeting many years ago, and um, my job in the Evangelical Alliance at the time was to uh, heard senior church leaders in meetings they didn't want to attend. <laughs> it became a specialism of mine over the years. And I was in this particular meeting, um, which is a prayer event this time, and a guy, who, a guy who was across the room called Gerald Coates overheard a conversation somebody else was having with me on my right, a girl called Lyndon Barring. Lynn Barring said something like, wouldn't, in a Welsh accent, which I shall not attempt, um, wouldn't it be great if the Evangelical Alliance had its first general, black general director, see? So I laughed. And Gerald, who was the other side of the room, said, yes, and you have five years to prepare. 
and I laughed even louder. So at the end of the meeting, I went across to Gerald. I think this is the first time I'm telling the story in public. Aren't you privileged? Anyway, so I went across to the other side of the room after the meeting was over, and I said, Gerald, ha, 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 ha. That five-year thing, ha, 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 are you joking? And he said, nope, nope. Almost exactly five years later, I was appointed. Seven years later, I went back to Gerald, and I said, Gerald, you know that five-year thing about me being appointed the general director? Do you remember? And he said, nope. <laughs> That's what made it really good. He didn't remember. He was kind of bouncing around on it. Yeah, so sometimes God speaks specifically into my life and into yours. Tells you exactly what's going on right now. A little bit like a sat-nav. A divine sat-nav. You know how it works? Turn, take the second left. Second left. Third right. Third right. Immediate left, immediate left. You have 30 kilometers to go. Then it shuts down. It doesn't say much to you. It's not malice. Just keep going. What's God's will for my life, Satnav? Oh, just keep going. <laughs> just keep driving. What do I now do now? We've done five miles. Keep driving. Go forward. And sometimes God's purpose for us specifically works like that. He doesn't come badgering you every five minutes. Sometimes he just leaves you alone to get on with it. Here is the important thing, though. It's not whether God has specifically stepped in every other week to say left, right, straight. It is that my life is constantly committed to his purpose. That's the thing. That's where security comes, ladies and gentlemen, if you're in uni if you're in your first job, if you're just about to get married, if you're wondering if you should, if you're just trying to get a child and it's not happening fast, if you are being threatened to be made redundant, that's where you get security. That's where you become invulnerable. That's where you become indestructible. You know that text from Romans 8? For in him we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. I used to wonder what that verse meant. And one day I was sitting in a little Methodist church many moons ago, um, and a, a, a lovely elderly Methodist preacher, I was about 22, so she seemed elderly, she may have been 40, um, <laughs> said, to be a conqueror is to fight and win. To be more than a conqueror is to fight and you can't lose. <laughs> to fight and not be able to lose. How do you do that? You do that by being in the slipstream of where God is going. Where God is going is being a God of mercy, a God of justice. A God who is taking the entire creation inexorably to that place where every knee bows and every tongue says Jesus is Lord. And in the meantime, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God making his appeal through us to the world. Be reconciled to God. I cannot think of a better career plan than that. That God says to every single person who steps into his purpose, what I'm doing in your life is okay, but what you're doing in my purpose is far 
far more important. And for each Christian to recognize that the moment we step into the things of God and we step into the purpose of God, we are in an indestructible process of reconciling the world back to Jesus Christ. No greater job than that. I can do it over coffee with a friend, a reconciler. British Telecom, back in the UK, um, called me one day after I had decided to discontinue using BT for my communications services. Hello? Hello? Ah, is that Mr. Edwards? Yep, Mr. Edwards speaking. Ah, this is the BT win-back team. <laughs> Pardon? This is the British Telecom win-back team. Uh, I understand that you have discontinued your services, uh, using our services. Yep. Well, I'm from the win-back team. I wonder if I could persuade you to come back to us. No, it wasn't quite like that. I'm a Christian. I wouldn't do that. But I thought BT had a whole team dedicated to getting me to come back. That's what you are. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his, I love this, God making his appeal. You know the ambassador doesn't have any legislative power in the nation he's in. You know that. He's got a power. He can't arrest you. or do it. He just represents his nation by his professionalism, by his winsomeness by her ability to network, by the way in which she carries herself in a foreign nation on behalf of her government. And she or he is making an appeal on the grounds of the authority of their nation state to foreigners, to people abroad, to say, listen to my government. This is what my government thinks. That's what God is doing in the office, in the sports center, in the surgery, as a nurse, as you tend to someone, God making his appeal through me. My plans went belly up. The bank account just got empty. Oh, I just passed with a, with a first class degree. It doesn't matter. It's here I am, God making his appeal through me. I'm a brain surgeon. God making his appeal through me, I'm a part of this incredible, unstoppable move of God, sweeping the world to that place where all things becomes new, and I become important in that context. Everybody's going to get to heaven and have questions about things which should have happened and didn't. And I always say that in heaven, the popular words will be, Hallelujah! Amen! Thank you, Jesus. And, oh. <laughs> that's what that was about. Oh. I think there's going to be a lot of holy R's <laughs> up there. Because all of us are trailed by dangling cords of unfinished business around our lives. The man or the woman, the boy or girl, who wants to know, what is God's will for my life, may find that God speaks very specifically about a gift, a calling, a placement. But knowing what God wants is far more about knowing where God is going. 
and being willing to be available to that. So what God is doing in your life is not as important as what you are doing in God's purpose. And things just don't always work out like you planned. Well, people are having a tough time describing me these days in my CV and my invita in the invitations I respond to. So when they introduce me, they're not quite sure what to say, you know, Brittany. You got it really good. You were cool tonight. I was listening carefully. Um, well, yeah, one of the best so far. You made it seem like you've known me for just forever. Um, and you sympathize with where I am now. People have been panicking, you know. So the question I'm asked more, more, most frequently now is, so Joel, what are you doing these days? Because I'm no longer leading an international outfit. So I was in a, I was in a meeting with church leaders, about 40 of us in a room. And um, we're going around a circle. So let's all introduce ourselves in our ministries, okay? So I am Dr. So-and-so from X Ministries, and I'm part of so-and-so. I'm Bishop from da-da-da. Ah, oh, I'm Joel Edwards. I'm a, I'm a student. I'm a research student at Durham. And they all laugh because they all know me. Yeah, but you're, yeah, and the rest? No, right now, I'm a research student. I've got to hand in 70,000 words by the end of February. Thank you very much. So what else are you doing? Yeah, people haul me around the place still to shout at other people in public, like now. What else are you doing? What are you leading? Who, who are you in charge of? Nobody. Uh, so you, you're just studying at 67 years old? Yeah, yeah, so uh, I'm slow. I've always been slow on the uptake. I'm catching up with the doctorate. Oh, anyway, thanks, Joel. <laughs> People want to introduce me as the director of. Nah, I'm not a has-been. I'm just okay, really, you see? So after I left Micah Challenge as international director, very important role, I'll have you know, um, <laughs> I went. I went, for a, I went for a job interview. I wasn't going to go for the job interview. It was an international role of a very important organization, which shall remain nameless, and which I knew very well. So I wasn't going to put my name in the hat, but 17 friends around the world, in one way or another, said, please put your name. We really would like you to go for this job, because we think you'd do a great job. Some of them even sent me the job description in case I'd missed the information. So I thought, let me, let me put my name in the hat. So I did. Anyways. Um, I got the interview by Skype. First question was, Joel, good to have you. So tell us about God's calling on your life for this job. So I said, uh, I don't think God called me to do this job. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't say God has called you to this job? I said, no, I wouldn't say God has called me to this job. I mean, I said, you got, you're interviewing four people. If we all say God has called us to this job, you're going to have to work out who's telling lies. At least three of us are liars. And I said, I wouldn't want to put that responsibility on you. So, so they said, okay, if you, if you don't feel God has called you to this job, why are you interested in this job? So I said, I'm not really interested in this job. This job is everything I don't want to do next. So I promised myself when I left Micah Challenge, I wasn't going to lead a team, 
I didn't want to do the most strategic planning. I don't want to raise budgets. I don't want to be in committee meetings or board meetings for a little while. I just want to think and reflect. So I wouldn't say this, I'm interested. This job is everything I'm not supposed to be doing. <coughs> I didn't get the job. Uh, but that was right, I didn't get the job. You gather I wasn't trying hard to get the job. Had they said yes, and my responses were slightly longer than that, I would have had a go at it. But it would have been a disaster. It would have been wrong. It would have been wrong. They made the right decision for me. This is a Jamaican guy. Kingston, Jamaica, who left his house, age eight. Because you see, being in God's purposes is shaped by being in the big plan. And how we are positioned to carry out God's purpose for our life depends not only on what we are doing in God's purpose, but what is also happening around us. Because God, what God is doing in you and to you, is often shaped by what God is doing around you. Ask Joseph, who had his pretty coat taken from him, stuck in a well, sold into slavery by his brothers, becomes a slave in prison, and ends up in Potiphar's house, and then as top man in Egypt. Ask Daniel, taken away as a prisoner, to Babylon and ends up as prime minister. Or Esther, taken away into captivity, and from captivity becomes queen. Ask Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus, struck by a bright light, meets Jesus, years later, ends up as a prisoner to Rome, where he always wants to go, and he ends up in Rome, not because it's a brilliant missionary plan, but because circumstances took him there. There's a great book a friend of mine read recently and recommended to me. It's a book by a guy called David Brooks called um, uh, The Road to Character. What fascinated my friend, who had been going through a really, really rough couple of years, all kinds of family disasters hitting him, one after t'other. My friend lives in the Netherlands, in Holland was the second chapter. The second chapter is called The Summoned Self. The Summoned Self. Here's what David Brooks says. In this scheme of things, we don't create our lives, we are summoned by life. The important answers are not found inside, they are found outside. He's 50% right. Of course we're working with the Spirit who guides us. He doesn't know about that. But he's right in that very often the Spirit works and God works in response to the stuff which goes on around us. Stuff happens. Yeah. So how does the black guy from Kingston, Jamaica head towards the Evangelical Alliance and gets landed on you on a Sunday night, screaming and shouting at you about the will of God? Well, he does so because at the age of eight, he's taken from, England to, from Jamaica to England because two years earlier, he woke up one morning at the age of six and his mum is gone because she has had to escape his father's brutality. Here's a guy who at the age of six is hearing his mother being beaten. 
And at the age of six, he says to himself, if I were a man, my father would be dead. Six, I was six thinking that stuff, six. And when my mother disappears and I wake up on Monday morning before I go to school, where is mom? Mom has gone to England, she's gone. Two years later, I'm taken across to the UK, age eight, May 1960, if you want to do the maths. And culture shock after culture shock, black, Pentecostal guy in a school of 1,200 boys. He's the only one of three black guys. He's one of two Christians that he knows about. He doesn't really want to hang out with the other guy because the other Christian is a white guy who walks like this <laughs> across the playground and I'm going to have nothing to do with that. <laughs> and so you have to grow up with that stuff. How do you handle this? through the probation service into the evangelical lines, showing up before all kinds of people you never dreamt you would turn up. Why? Circumstances sometimes shapes what God does in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Because stuff happens. And when life kicks you in the teeth and you thought your best plans were ruined forever, that's the time when being in the purpose of God makes you resilient. Makes you indestructible. So even if they kill you, you are still doing God's will. There's a bloke who found out about that, and I'm going to close in the next two hours or so. <laughs> What's funny? His name is David. David was an interesting guy, and ah. Uh, he was a lousy father. He was a bit of a hypocritical person from time to time. He committed uh, adultery, conspiracy to murder, murder. He was king, bad king, good king. If you're looking for the perfect father, do not go to David. But this is how the Acts records him in the book of Acts chapter 13. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. This is what I like. David served God's purpose in his own time. That's all God asks a person to do. When you hear a bright, a loud voice telling you specifically what God wants, that's great when the voice is silent on you in tough times, it is then that you have to have a sense of serving God's purpose, the reconciling work of God in the most ridiculous silences, in the most perplexing circumstances, when you have just been told there is cancer to be dealt with, or when you're told there's a great opportunity, you dare not miss it, and you've got a week to decide, and you've either got to take this job or stay where you are, and you've got to make that decision. And it seemed as if you agonized, and for some weird reason, God didn't show up in a booming voice with prophetic utterances coming from five different directions, and you're on your own, you've got to make that kind of decision. Even if you get it wrong, ladies and gentlemen, to be in God's reconciling program is still in the purpose of God. I'm going to close with a fellow. Thank you. I'm going to close with a fellow I like. He was a poet, a well-known poet called John Milton. 
And if you're a poet, sight is important. John Milton, the 18th century poet, went blind prematurely. And he wrote a sonnet on his blindness. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Does God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly asked. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God does not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bears his mild yoke? They serve him best. God's state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Sometimes being in God's purposes involves running around from pillar to post with a stopwatch and a diary and a strategic plan. Sometimes being in God's purpose is waiting. It's just waiting. It's just not being sure, but being sure that you're in a bigger thing, an ambassador reconciling, but waiting. Sometimes it's enjoying great success, leading a thriving business, profit margins going through the roof. That's okay, God doesn't mind profitability. He's not stingy like that. Sometimes the margin's going the other way and you're waiting for the answer to the next move. Sometimes it's waiting to find out what is that right relationship. Sometimes it's, should I be in this relationship? Sometimes it's, what did I do wrong? Sometimes it's, I did something wrong, and this is why I'm here. But we should be able to say like David, whatever the circumstances, they also serve who only stand and wait.